In many ways, the spiritual journey is a journey of discovery, a journey of deepening our understanding and our contact with what is true and what is most real. In the time before he died, Many of the followers of the Buddha gathered around him. He knew his death was near and he spoke to them. And one of the last things he said, recorded in the texts that were preserved through oral tradition and passing from one person to another and then eventually written down, and have come to us two and a half thousand years later, was the admonition, the invitation, the encouragement that the Buddha gave as his, some of his final words, to be a lamp unto yourself. And I find this a very powerful image, the sense of what a lamp represents and to be that for oneself. When we maybe think about a lamp, it's a an instrument or a tool or a thing, I guess, that has the capacity to facilitate the transformation of fuel into warmth and light. To facilitate the transformation of matter into energy, into illumination and warmth. And this, to me, points quite directly to what is at the heart of spiritual practice and teachings. And this I'd like to speak about this evening. The radiant heart of life. If we, too think in terms of that image or that metaphor of being a lamp, the quality of illumination, of light, that capacity to reveal, this is something we contact, we recognize perhaps, we experience, we could say. When we recognize or when we contact the simple awareness that reveals experience, when we start to notice this quality or capacity that presents itself as revealing what is taking place. And there's a a wisdom and an intelligence in this seeing, when we see things as they are, truly and deeply. When we apply that seeing, it leads to the reduction and the dissolution of suffering. In life. And the quality of warmth that the image of the lamp evokes, it equally points, it seems, very clearly to the to the experience we might recognise of love, of what it is to feel that deep care within us or around us, to come into contact with that remarkable, profound and yet ordinary 
and kind of in another way everyday truth of our of our caring and of the caring that is around us and that love that caring expresses itself as kindness and as compassion as caring for others and ourselves when it's applied when we live in accordance with this and so it's useful or perhaps a useful way to understand this process or this journey as an uncovering as a revealing of those qualities that are most fundamentally true and are innate that are we could say already here but not yet necessarily fully recognized by us not necessarily so clearly accessible to us that they can inform and guide our lives and the degree to which we can connect with recognize these qualities and allow them to inform how we live to this degree our practice is transformative and our lives our hearts and our world are transformed so we're not trying to create something here we're not trying to make something that's not here already and it's important to understand that because so easily we get drawn into and caught up in the the kind of more materialistic orientation of trying to produce something which suggests it's not here already if we need to produce it if we think i need to become more mindful or more aware or i need to become more loving in some ways we're not quite acknowledging or honoring something that's already here and quite understandably of course because our experience may be that we're not necessarily in contact with it in any steady or sustained way and so although these qualities this awareness this love that we i think recognize although these qualities are present they're here and they're in fact boundless they're not qualities that are limited in any ultimate or real way but we experience them as absent or as limited because our orientation is not towards this we experience or conceive of that which is most true and most precious as somehow missing or limited because our attention and our orientation keeps getting pulled and we follow it mostly out into the world of things of experiences that we feel obliged or compelled to control or to manipulate to organize or to rework into some fashion or form that fits in with what our preferences or our prejudices suggest should be the case
And that process of pushing away one thing and grasping hold of another entangles us in the world of changing experience within which we can easily become lost and lose that sense of contact, that availability, that openness, that receptivity to the touch of what is more true, more real, more profound. So our practice, we could say, isn't that we're trying to be present. I mean, what else could we be? It's not as if we've ever gone anywhere. You know, you've never departed from where you are. How could you? How could we leave where we are? We're always there. Life's always right in that place. And yet what we practice is non-distractedness, non-departure. When we release our habit of following the mind's movement away and out of where we are towards that which we seek or away from that which we fear, as we practice releasing ourselves from the grip of that movement of mind, of reactivity that's an expression of a biological conditioning that has very deep and powerful roots for us, but that doesn't necessarily serve us in this most important and precious venture. It has its place in terms of functioning in the world and looking after certain things, sure. But when we follow the mind in that way, we lose contact, we lose touch. And so we're learning just to release ourselves from that pull again and again releasing ourselves from that pull. And what happens when we do that, this is really important to notice. It's not as if we then have to make ourselves present or get back somewhere. We're already there. It's like when we're, when we're not present, we don't even know it. By definition, we don't even know when we're not present because that's what it means to not be present. We don't know where we are. And the moment we become present again, how do we do that? We can't have done it because we didn't even know we weren't present. And even if we did, we're not there to do anything about it. It kind of seems to happen by itself, as if somehow the light comes on. And then we recognize it, we see it, it's revealed. And it's, ah, here we are. So, the process of releasing ourselves from the pull, from the grasp, from the grip and the trip that follows it is really where we're engaging here. And as we do, what starts to show itself is there's a natural wakefulness. We can feel it, we can sense it here. It's quite apparent for myself and for Helen. We can, and I trust for yourselves also, but I haven't spoken about it with you up till now. But I imagine it's apparent to you to feel how that quality deepens. Maybe it's not always apparent. I hope that it might be. But there's a deepening that happens. This quality of presence, of wakefulness, that we start to just sense. 
without quite knowing what that is. And it's not like it's something we can put our finger on. And yet it is something that touches us, that we notice by a, a sense of expansiveness or a sense of sort of substantiality that's not rigid or tight or fixed, but that it's sort of just a hereness and a nowness that we start to recognize more fully. And it's nothing that we've created or that we need to create. It's what's here already when we turn towards where we are. And so we're invited to examine this experience. We call it an experience. It's not necessarily an experience in the ordinary use of that word. But this fact of experiencing that's going on. We're asked to turn towards that and say, what's this? That's happening. This that's been going on for our entire lives. This receiving of experience, the revealing of life, the awareness of movement and change. All of this. If we start to sense into it, we may begin to notice that it doesn't have any boundary to it. There's no place where it stops. It doesn't have any limit. It has the potential and the capacity to encompass everything. If our willingness is to go there, there's no way or there's no place in which that sense of life being revealed somehow stops before we do. If we hold back, of course, that's a limit on it. But if we don't, if we allow ourselves to go beyond where we've allowed ourselves to go so far. And this is something that's been happening for some of you, discovering and feeling the sense of something opening up, moving into some territory of your experience that maybe it hasn't been so possible. There hasn't maybe been quite the willingness to open to it. And understandably, it takes time. It's something we learn. And yet this boundarylessness, this openness of of revealing, of revealed life, we could say. We can talk about awareness, we talk about presence. It has no boundary, it has no limitation to it beyond the appearance of boundary or limitation that happens when we identify with our thought and our thinking. When we believe the stories, the images and the pictures we create in our minds that tell us who I am, or who the world is, and that seek to fix it and limit it in a way that makes it something we can take hold of, that provides for us perhaps reassurance or security, but at the same time has within it a profound sense of limitation, a profound sense of confinement, and ultimately a deeply painful sense of disconnection. Because there's a way in which we've contracted or constricted or pulled in from the openness and the fluidity of life. And it tempts it to lock on to something particular and say, this is me. This particular story is my life. It's for sure maybe part of what has been our experience. But no story, no description, no language can encompass what our life is let alone the experiences that have been. It's always a summary or a simplification 
and more often than not, a distorted one. And so we're asked here to to release our belief in the content of the thoughts. They don't have to believe necessarily without having to somehow reject the fact that these images and these ideas about who we are come up. But to leave it open, to not know. And when we can do that, as we learn what that means for us, to just say, oh, when the sense of this is how I am, or this is who I am, or what I am, or how I'll be. It's not like we have to say no to it. We just have to say, "Mm, maybe, maybe not. Just leaving open that sense of uncertainty. It releases the sense of limitation or constriction. It also means we're without the illusion of security that was offered by that. But it's worth it. It's a good deal in the end. Though we might doubt that hearing it or facing it. But there's something about that openness and that spaciousness that is available to us, that is revealed to us in the releasing of the identification with our ideas and our stories and our certainties. That is is expressed or is shown or as we could say known in our experience, known in our life as a as a radiant quality, as a sense of something that's alive and light and bright and clear. And it's not that there's some experience here, it's more a way in which a way in which we recognise ourselves being touched as if by that. Without there being any that we can say is it. As if we might, it wasn't so long ago, the sun was shining and we remember the feeling of the warmth on our body and how there's just a certain relaxing that happens quite naturally in the presence of that warmth and the enjoyment of that. And sometimes in the meditation and in the practice and the movement and the yoga, we can notice that sense of expansion, that sense of opening up. And there's this this light, this and I'm not talking about visible light, it's it's a lightness in terms of quality. But it has something in common with the quality of light, that radiance, that sense of ah, and we feel a sense of naturally expanding into it. And so it's like we can sense something, or we can sense the presence without being able to locate, without being able to take hold of. Or fix and say, oh, it's this. Equally, we can't in any way say, it's not that. So what is this quality, this knowing, this presence, this awareness that is simply here when we're not departing? It's simply here. When we return, when we reconnect, it's never absent. When we turn towards this moment, the light is always available. It's not bound to anything. And yet it's not separate from anything either.
And it's not something we can grasp and say, ah, yeah, I've got it. It's this. And yet it's revealed in the release of that very urge to take hold of anything at all. And the letting go of that urge to grasp, to seek to locate, to fix. That we experience, and you know, the grasping, the closing of the hand, it's like there's this tightening, this constricting, this constraining, this smallness that gets very tight, and it's not so much use to us for most of the things we need to do. And that's kind of how our body and our mind and our heart can become. And our life can feel constricted. And yet, there's this unstoppable capacity to open, to release, and to feel in that the unboundness of what this is that is alive. And that knows, that receives, that participates in this life. So the simple practice of non-distractedness, the simple practice of non-distractedness, of releasing that compulsive urge to move away into the mind. The simple practice of non-distractedness is a doorway and a gateway directly opening into the nature of life. And as well as practicing non-distractedness, we could say we're also practicing non-resistance or non-reactivity. To put it in its most simple form, in terms of framing what we're engaged in here, seeing our tendency to resist, to withdraw from, or to react against our experience. As we notice that, we see it in so many different ways, so quickly and so easily, it seems. There's this pulling away, this withdrawing from. And yet, if we notice that habit and we stop supporting it again, it's simply we're not giving support to this habit, this urge, this movement. We start to feel We start to sense what it is that runs underneath that urge to pull away. And we see that it's fear or it's anger or it's hatred. It's the wish to withdraw from or to push away or in its more extreme form to destroy that which we feel threatened by, that which we feel scared of. And again, that that whole movement of reaction to, of reactivity. That might just be a mild sense, "Mm, I'm not sure I want to experience being here right now. I think I'd rather be somewhere else. To the full-blown, you know, (laughs) whatever this is that I don't like, it's, you know, I want to kill it. That whole 
kind of energy that can sometimes come through us. Seeing that, that that's coming out of a desire to, to protect ourselves from something we feel unable or believe we are unable to open to and to receive. But when we release it, and there's moments when this happens, it's again sometimes like grace. It's not that we can do it and just decide, that's what I'll do, it's a good idea, why not? It's not like that. And yet somehow this capacity to release, to let go, to open, seems to develop, seems to deepen seems to show itself more and more as we practice here together. And there's a, there's a natural openness and boundlessness to the heart when it's not caught in that resistance, in that fear, in that contraction, that anger or hatred. And so we see that, and again, the experience is not so far away from us. And many of you have reported just noticing that sense of sometimes in the encountering of fear or anger or hurt, that in moving towards that experience and including it, rather than somehow needing to act upon it or do something with it, that there's an opening. There's a releasing of the grab or of the grip that it has on our heart. And there's an openness again. There's an openness of heart, a boundlessness of caring that is very much at the core and at the centre of life and which we're invited to explore, come to understand and to more and more deeply trust that this is ultimately where it all comes from. And... As an illustration for how that is so and a support for the very necessary process of forgiveness that allows our hearts to open. I'd like to tell a little, well it's not a story really, it's more like a, an image that occurred to me to try and explain this um, some time ago. But to understand what's actually going on when we see in our own hearts fear and anger and hatred and I've certainly seen plenty at times of those in my heart and I trust you too will have encountered these things and we see them and they're scary and they're not very flattering and it's easy to feel somehow that we did something wrong to have ended up like this so we need to fix ourselves and equally we can see of course the effects in the world of fear of anger, of hatred. When it's enacted in the world, it causes so much pain, so much suffering, so much grief. And quite rightly, it would seem, we wish to reject or oppose or stand against those forces, those energies of harmfulness, of cruelty, of destruction. And yet... If we understand them fully and truly, I think we can, without abandoning our willingness to take a stand in the face of actions that are harmful, we can come to understand that their source is none other than the same as our wish or where our wish to 
address them comes from. So, so just tell the, give you the image. So just imagine, if you would, if you're walking in the woods one day, and you come across a puppy in the woods. Now, I don't know how you feel about puppies, but I kind of like puppies. So for me, the sense is I would just like to reach out and stroke this creature. And imagine reaching out to stroke this puppy, and it bites your hand. What's your response? Just imagine, what is the response? I know, my, my response is, you, dog, you know. And maybe we think, I'm going to teach you a lesson. First response, before we've had time to stop and really see what's going on. You know, it's like this, here am I, I'm being friendly, I'm being kind, and this thing has attacked me and hurt me, and ah, you know, it obviously needs to learn that that's a bad thing to do, and probably the best way to teach it is to show it how painful it is to get bitten. You know, that, that's our basic sort of, you know, eye for an eye me- reactive mentality. And imagine it's this urge to, you know, maybe we're not going to hit it because we're actually, you know, relatively conscious and aware. We don't want to hurt this thing, but we still wouldn't mind if we felt it was okay. You know, that sense of... Rrr. And then as that whole reaction is happening, imagine we see at that moment that the puppy's foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps with jaws. And then just sense what happens to your response in that moment. Your hand still hurts. You've still been bitten. And you see what's going on. This puppy is in pain. It is scared. It's actually desperately seeking for some way out of this predicament. And the only way it knows how to try and do that is attacking. And you know when we, or when I got bitten, my first response was exactly the same. And if I'd been a puppy, I'd have just bitten it when I got bitten. And that's what goes on in the world much of the time. There isn't the consciousness, the understanding of seeing the harmfulness in the reaction. And it's simply played out because of the belief and the identity, the, the, the certainty that that being which caused me harm is bad and deserves it. Or this being having caused harm to others, and I have, as I imagine you have, that that may be something that's bad in me, that deserves to be punished. We can think in these ways, and we can be supported to think in these ways, and it's not true. It's absolutely not true. So I'll give you another scenario. Imagine some time later you're walking on the woods, It's autumn, long time after the first walk. You've forgotten all about it. You see a puppy. You quite like puppies. So you reach out to stroke it. It bites your hand. You look at the puppy and you see that it's buried up to its shoulders in leaves. You can't see its legs. What would it mean to understand that it's foot, or to know immediately that, oh, this puppy's foot is in a trap, even though you couldn't see it and confirm it for yourself. What would that require? For me, what that suggests is understanding that it's not of the nature of puppies to want to attack or harm. It's not their nature to do that. 
unless they're in pain, in fear, and in reaction trying to get away from all of that. And how can one know that that's so? In the end, we can't know what goes on in someone else's mind, puppy, person, or whatever. But if we really look carefully into our own hearts, and this is something for myself I've spent a lot of time on, periods in my life it felt really important, just to look and see where we ourselves have caused harm, have hurt others, accidentally or sometimes intentionally. Probably we've all done that. We've realised at some point later, oh yeah, I wanted to hurt that person. Didn't think so at the time. Well, maybe we haven't. Maybe not. But whether, even with accidentally, even when we've done it without meaning to, really, what I see for myself very clearly is that it's come out of my own pain, my own suffering. It's when I've been afraid or hurt and feeling unable to cope or to deal with what's happening, have in some way lashed out. And it's so compelling for me, the truth of that, that I'm actually completely confident that it's the same for each of you and every other being I've ever encountered in the world. For me, I can look and I can see where my foot was in the trap. Sometimes for others, we know where their suffering is that leads to their behavior. And we can see, ah, yeah, that's how that came to be. Sometimes we can't know it. And yet if we know that in ourselves our basic orientation is not that, then perhaps we can trust this is so for all beings. That all action in the end comes out of an attempt to care for that whichever we care for. Not all of it skillful by any means. Nothing in this suggests that it's not appropriate to say no to behaviour that's harmful. To restrain in ourselves or in others those things that would cause injury to others or to ourselves. To hold back from acting. And yet not doing so out of judgment or condemnation, but simply out of a recognition that this does not serve in the end the caring that lies at the very heart of it, the attempt to take care of that which we care for, which is really what it all comes down to in the end. And so there's a responsiveness here. There's an ability to respond. It's not about somehow ceasing to engage with life or respond to life. Sometimes our response is to restrain the reaction. Other times, of course, the response might be, we see the puppy in the trap and rather than wanting to you know tell the puppy what a bad puppy it is or strike the puppy we think first of all I want to get this creature out of the trap and if we can do that without getting hurt of course that might be wise it's like we have to let it eat our palm to make it feel better that doesn't make sense but then we might want to find whoever put the trap there and have a word to them about what happened when they did that And of course, you know, that's a simple metaphor for many things in the world we may wish to respond to. And there can be a strength and a clarity with that. Not this person's bad, but that action is causing suffering. I want to address that. That's the natural response of the caring. 
when it doesn't go into judgment, when it doesn't go into condemnation and rejection, it naturally goes into a responsivity to healing, towards help, towards supporting the transformation of the suffering that is being caused and the suffering that is the cause. And so in releasing ourselves from the, the pattern and the grip of that reactivity and that often unquestioned background belief that makes us feel justified in our rejection, our condemnation or our judgment of others or ourselves or parts of ourselves. As we start to question, as we start to see through that, there's a way in which life touches us in a way that's fresh, that's new. And here, simply by not enacting, being given limited opportunity to enact, just because we have to keep our mouth shut, at least most of the time. You know, we can't just say when something irritates us. We can't just react. And we see our mind reacting. We start to realize, oh, look, it's pretty reactive. But we're not playing it out. We're not reinforcing it. We start to, start to release the grip on the heart. Softens, opens, releases. And this sense of caring for life starts to come through more and more clearly. And many of you speaking about at times in the groups and individual interviews, that, again, that sense of something we care for, something we're touched by, that we've encountered here, or that we've recalled in our life. And so we might then just look at what's going on in a, with a completely different eyes, with a completely different sense of the world when our heart is becoming unburdened from that constriction, that pain of, of judgment and of rejection of others or of ourselves. We feel more just a sense of Fortune for having received this life. Perhaps even gratitude. And we might look at our body and think, you know, wow, this is amazing that we have this. It's, it's by no means perfect. It was going pretty well for the first few years, but, you know, it doesn't take that many before it starts going downhill. Sometimes that happens a lot earlier than we wished. But that's what happens with bodies. And it's not easy. And yet, you know, if we really look at what this organic structure is, we tend to say it's my body. But who says that it's your body? This thing is a multi-occupancy housing estate. You know, there are billions of beings living inside this organic structure. We all know this. We tend to think it's my body, it's me here. I should be offended if I get sick. But, you know, there's all these other things living here. I spent probably... 15 years of my life battling fungus between my toes. And you know, it wasn't that they were so bad. I mean, they're still there. It's not like I finished um, with them. But there was a sense of embarrassment. That There's not shame in the sense of, you know, I'd be embarrassed for someone to know, but more the sense of it's not right. How can something else be living on me? But actually I've realized that, well, it's kind of living on the same thing I'm living on. And probably it's going to last longer than I am because it's certainly not going away and we've kind of 
basically come to a truce. You know, it's got a certain amount of territory and I'm trying to hang on to the rest of it. But that's about as far as it goes. You know? And it's kind of, what if we gave it some legitimacy and said, oh, okay, well, it wants its little bit. Because, you know, we're dependent on these other creatures in our bodies for our survival, our digestion, to be able to eat and digest the food we eat. We need a whole bunch of little creatures in there chewing away at it for us. And without them, or if they're not healthy, we get really sick. So there's a kind of possible humility we might come to about this body. It's like, wow, you know, it's not just mine. I'm kind of reliant on all these little creatures. We so happily bombard them with antibiotics on a regular basis. And it's like, gosh, you don't want to kill them. It's not to say we shouldn't take appropriate medicine on certain occasions. But, you know, if this was a democracy... What chance have we got of getting elected here? You know, one of us and how many of them? You know, hopefully we might make it into a a benign dictatorship. But even then, we're not really in charge of it, are we? And that sense of just for me, what happens when I reflect on the fact that this is a, you know, a co-housing project, it's like I just somehow feel much more light with the whole thing. It's kind of like, oh, okay, well, yeah, okay, so this bit's... You know, wearing out, falling off, getting, you know, not quite the way I would prefer it, but okay, that's how it is. That's how it is. And we might sense that our breath, this this ordinary and yet remarkable process that keeps us alive, it's it's something that we're sharing with everything around us. You know, we all know that the oxygen we're drawing into our body that sustains our life is being released by the leaves of the trees and the grasses around us. And that, you know, perhaps we sort of think that there's some long time delay and, you know, it's been hanging around in the room for the last few days. But some of it, particularly when there's a breeze, may have been inside the cell of a leaf minutes, if not moments before. It's inside the cells of our body. Of course, some of it was inside the cells or the body of our neighbour. That's not quite such an attractive idea. But equally useful to just think, oh, yeah, I'm breathing in the air that they've breathed out. And fortunately, they've left some of the oxygen in it, because we do. We don't take it all. So that when I breathe it in, I get some. So, huh, interesting. Look at that. I mean, it can seem a little silly sometimes reflecting like this. And yet what I find is that when we open, when we turn, there's a sense of if we look at this thing that's going on that we call life, There's a a profound caring that is shared, that's universal. That we can recognize in ourselves and others and all around us if that's what we're looking for. If that which we're, that is what we are resonating with. And as we more and more resonate with that in ourselves, it becomes more obvious and apparent all around us. It's not as rare or as scarce as we might have imagined. Not in our own hearts, and certainly not in our world. This resonance, this responsiveness, this way in which we are touched by and we touch life in every moment, in all moments, this expresses itself in so many ways. So much 
nobility of heart, so much greatness of heart, so much beauty of heart, is shown in so many ways in this world. In many kind actions and expressions of sensitivity here, looks of support and kindness from one to another, or even just the kindness of restraining from going up to someone, but just having a sense of, I'm with them, when we notice they may be struggling, but yet giving them in the kindness the sense of their own space. And in the world, if we, if we look, there's immense kindness being shown, immense courage being shown, so many places and so many ways. I'm coming to mind talking about this, remembering the story of a, a young boy and his sister. A young boy was four or five and his sister a couple of years older. His sister was really ill with a, um, a blood condition that was uh, very serious and life-threatening and in need of a bone marrow transplant. But there was no one they could find who had the suitable blood, su- sorry, the suitable bone marrow type except her little brother. And so they thought, maybe we can get a transplant from him. But being respectful, they felt they needed to ask him if that was okay. And so they said to the little boy, her parent, his parents asked, you know, uh, your sister's really ill, she might die. But if we had a little bit of the marrow from your from your bones, then she might live. What do you think? Would that be okay? And he apparently went really white, very still. And then after a few moments he said, okay. So the surgery was done and the transplant happened and successful. And not too long after the surgery, the little boy was there with his parents and he looked at them and they were very happy and sort of kindly and loving towards him and appreciative of his offering and then he said suddenly again going very still he said can you tell me now how long before I die and the sense of that young being just having not understanding that of course he didn't have to give his life but thinking he was you know there are so many stories like that in this world and what again, it speaks to something that's within us all, that's innate. There, are, I, <laughs> There's probably a lot of stories I'd like to... Well, not probably, there are more stories I'd like to share. I'm just giving that one because otherwise I'll be probably talking all evening. But what I notice in myself, and I've told that story plenty of times to plenty of groups of people, probably some of you have heard it before, I don't know. But I still find that such things have the capacity to just to touch right through into the sense of, yeah, there's something that recognises the beauty and the truth of that capacity in us and what it means to be human. And what is that? What is that? We might ask ourselves. Not with our heads but with our hearts, with the sense of our whole being. What's this that could give itself so fully? 
and how I understand this and try and trying to communicate it. It's like this caring that's there, that's innate, that's when we're not in our reactivity, it's just where we are. It's just what's here. It's what's revealed underneath the layers and the obscurations of what we've built on top of the heart of our life, which we learn to let go of here. We learn to put down. There's a, there's a caring. There's a, a natural, we could say love. That word gets misused and overrated in some ways when it's used in terms of just romantic love. This is something deeper, a sense of caring that gets distorted. Not that the caring is distorted, but that it's not allied, it's not connected with wisdom. So the caring gets linked to just some of life. And it starts to be concerned just about me or mine or my family or my country or my people or my body. And when that happens, then it loses contact with, or it's limited, it's constricted in the sense of the caring for other equally is lost. Whether it be that other part of myself that I really don't like or that part of my community or my country, or my family, or my whatever it might be, that we've suddenly somehow made other and said no. Not that we choose to do this, but it happens. We said no, I will not include this in my heart. That as we start to see more deeply and truly that mistaken identification with just one part of it all, one piece of life. That mistaken identification starts to starts to break down and dissolve. And the caring that is there opens up to include all that lives, or more and more of that. The love in and of itself, or the caring, to perhaps use a less charged word, the caring is in itself boundless and innate. It's what's there. And I think we know this in our hearts. It's what's there. And yet, when it's free from that tendency to be linked to only this and not that, however, that whatever form that takes, then there's a a boundlessness to it, that love without boundaries is boundless. It's its nature. And equally, as that quality of awareness, there's a radiance to it. There's a sense of the boundlessness of something that extends in all directions, through time and space and beyond that is not even confined or defined in terms of space or time, that stands before, after, and beyond it all, but equally in and through every moment and every place. This is 
we could say, or how I, I find it useful to articulate this, is it's like this is the tangible face of the awakened heart and mind. This is what we contact. This is what is revealed to us. We can't say what it sources. We can't put our finger on that from which this radiates. In fact, we don't need to. What we are asked to do is to see it and to let our life be lived through it. So far as we're unaware of the radiance of love, of awareness, so far as we're unaware of and not in contact with this, we consume our life and our energy pursuing the things revealed by it, the objects that appear in it, the experiences and the things of life. And yet there is this realm of discovery, call it truth or the awakened mind, you could say the Buddha nature. Some traditions talk of God or divinity. It's not the language of this tradition, but all language has its traps and its limitations. So it's not necessary to get caught up in that. The Buddha once said, this heart-mind is luminous, brightly shining, radiant. It is obscured by conditions that visit it. This the blind do not realize. And so for them there is no development of heart and mind. This mind, he said, this heart-mind is luminous, brightly shining, radiant, and it is free of the conditions that visit it. This the wise understand, and for them there is the development of heart and mind. And so, here we're invited to see and to know for ourselves this, we could say, development, this discovery, this revelation of the radiance of life, the love, the presence and the truth that is just this. Ryokan says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.